And so I want to make this statement before I begin. I believe the Word of God. I, I just want you to understand this, where I come from. I believe the Word of God. Um, I try not to read into Scripture what I want. I try to allow the Scripture to teach me what He wants to teach me. And I, I just really have a simple principle of believing God at face value. Just like this morning in prayer time when I said, Lord, it's almost like you expect me to believe you. I really do believe God. I really do, and I believe his word. Um, our denomination has a, has a uh, fundamental truth that says scriptures, both old and the New Testaments, are verbally inspired of God and are the revelation of God to man, the infallible, authoritative rule of faith and conduct. It's based off of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I believe that when he spoke his word, it was for us so that we can hear and understand him. I, some of you may struggle with hearing the voice of God. You know, and at times I even, I even question and wonder, was that you, God? Was it you or was that pepperoni pizza that I ate last night? You know, what is it? You know, and I, I struggle with that sometimes, but but here's the thing, if you really want to know God's voice, get into his word, because it's his spoken word. It's his voice. He's, he's speaking to you so clearly. Um, and I trust God's word without fail, without error. It is God's word, and I believe that 100%. We can't trust all of the politicians, because those guys will lie to you. Just to, Some of them will lie to you to get a vote. Well, we're in church. All of them will lie to you to get a vote, right? I mean, we can't trust politicians. We can't, we can't trust all the scientists. I mean, they lied to us about evolution. They lied to us about the Big Bang Theory. We can't trust all doctors. They sit there and write that calories on buffalo wings are so high. They're not that high. They're good for you. Buffalo wings are good for you. We can't trust all people. Uh, they lie to us. They let us down. But there is one thing that has never changed, and it's God's word. One thing that we can always trust is God's word. And so when I read things in scripture that says, ask anything in my name, when I read things in scripture that says that God had the ability to make the sun and the moon stand still, when I read in scripture that God is in control of the seasons and the times, when I read in scripture, ask anything in my name, I believe it because it's what he spoke. I believe that the word of God is inspired without fail. I make my stand on the word of God. I trust it. I meditate it. On, I concentrate on it. I believe it. You know, I was one time in my office, and I was, I was kind of having one of those rebellious moments with God because this is right after I left my second job and, or my, you know, the job that was providing all the money for us, and that came here on faith to just work full-time here. And at the time, we had, you know, like 10 people. I mean, it was, it was just, you know, and here I am with a family of seven and, and I'm quitting my job. I'm making good money and God asked me to do this. And so I'm in my office and I'm just struggling with finances because, you know, we realized quickly that the church, you know, we never depended on the church for anything. All of a sudden we had to depend on it and it wasn't enough. And, and I just, I was so mad at God. I'm sorry, am I being honest too much? Am I being too honest? I was mad at God. God, why did you make me quit a great job, make my family suffer and all this? Because I read in Scripture that it is more profitable to seek him than it is to go out and to pursue these things. I was reading that in Proverbs. And so I sat there and I crossed my arms. I said, God, fine. You say it's more profitable. 
You say it's more profitable. I'm going to sit here, God. If you say that, and next thing you know, my wife slips this check underneath the door. Hey, someone just dropped this off for you. And I'm like, okay, God, I believe you. <laughs> you know, I believe, I believe your word. It's hard sometimes, but you got to believe God's word. Because it is the devil who is always trying to convince you that his word is not true. It is always, you know, he's not a creative guy. He can't even come up with his own story. So he has to create an antichrist. He has to create a false creation. He has to create a false theory of life. Do you know what the first thing Satan ever said to Eve? Did God really say? The first thing he spoke, did God really say? And that's the thing that he's always trying to get us to doubt God's word. Well, I, I refuse to doubt God's word. I am, not, I am not the most brilliant man. Sorry, kids, disappoint you. I am not the most wisest. I'm not the best preacher. I'm an okay husband. But I love God's word. I really do. And I make my stand on Scripture. Heavenly Father, as we get ready to teach your word, I said all of that, Lord, just to say this, Lord, help me to always present your word at face value. I don't want to give them my opinions. I don't want to teach them my thoughts. I want them to know that this is your word. Lord, I know that I stand accountable before you, and so, Lord, I do that with honor and with reverence. But, Lord, I know your word. It's good. And I pray that you would reveal it. Lord, open our hearts to receive your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are talking about the book of Revelation, and we are moving into the third part of the book of Revelation. You know, there's three parts that Jesus laid out. Uh, he told John, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Now, my whole premise on the book of uh, Revelation is this, is that it is a simple book for you to read. Because God did not write this book to confuse us or to, to hinder us. Matter of fact, Jesus says, go give it to the churches and encourage them. How is it encouraging to know something you don't know? How is it encouraging to know something so complex? So God wrote this for us. He wrote this so that we can understand. And I believe that Jesus, when he says to John, write therefore what you have seen, that's chapter one. Because John is seeing all of this stuff that's going on. And then he says, write what is now. And what is now? It's the church. In chapters 2 and 3, he deals with the churches, to the churches say, to the churches say, to the churches say. And then Jesus says what will take place later, which brings us to chapter 4, and we talked about why, why I believe in the rapture. I believe that it's because Jesus Christ is coming back for us, going to meet us in the air, and we are going to ascend and go be with him, and in a twinkling of an eye, we're going to be changed and transformed. And then Jesus is saying, listen, I, must, I want you to come up here, John, just chapter 4. I want you to come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. After what? After the church. Because, see, the church still has authority. I don't know if you know this or not, but there is someone who's greater inside of you than anything that's in this world, any demonic, evil thing that is out there. There is power inside of you. There's power inside of you. I like to think like I'm a big magnet, you know? And when the enemy tries to come, it just, just it can't do it. Why? Because I am protected. I can't see the magnetic field, but I know that God is protecting me. And God protects us, and there is no authority. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. 
It can try, but it won't. So I believe that when we go into chapter 4, we're moving into the future. We're moving into this time where the tribulation is going to happen and we are not here on earth at this moment. We are in heaven and it's a party. And yes, buffalo wings are calorie free. I'm telling you, I must be hungry. I'm, I am hungry. I'm being truthful. Okay, make me breakfast next time. Okay, anyways, let's get focus here. Focus here. Will's like, man, I came back for this. Come on. All right. So, Revelations chapter 4, verse 2, it says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an embryo encircled the throne. John is, is writing down what he is witnessing here, and he says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. He finds himself, John finds himself in heaven. And we know that this is what Paul referred to as the third heaven, the place where God lives, the place that when we think of heaven, we think of where he lives. And uh, 2 Corinthians 12 says, I know a man, this is Paul saying, 14 years ago who was caught up to the third heaven, to the place where God is, the third heaven. And he's standing before someone who is on the throne He's standing before someone, and John describes him as someone. Now, some people say this may be the Father. Some people, this may be Jesus. I say yes, because you'll see in chapter 5 that Jesus is right there with the Father. So, but, but John is looking, and he sees the Father because no one else is seated on the throne in heaven. Psalm 103 at this time, 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So the Lord is on his throne in heaven. And we know that Jesus is there, like I said, because even in chapter 3, he says that I will stand, I will sit down with my father on his throne. Not thrones, but his throne. And so Jesus is there, the Father's there, but the one that John is really focused on right now is the one that is glowing or shining like jasper and ruby. John is giving us a clue that, that there is something awesome happening here. Why jasper and ruby? Because in the Old Testament, the high priests were, were given a breastplate to wear, and they made it out of 12 stones, and each stone represented, each stone represented a tribe of Jacob, of Israel. And so the first stone, Jasper, the last stone, Ruby, the first stone, and in the midst of all of them, all 12 of them, the last one, Ruby, that the Father is there, and He is the one who is over all the people, His people. And He is there with this Ruby. And Jasper, color. The firstborn, Reuben. The last, Benjamin. The firstborn, Reuben. The last, Benjamin. Do you know what Reuben's name means? This is really powerful. Hold on now. Behold a son. <laughs> right? It's like, what are you going to name your kid? Behold a son. Right? Reuben. That's what his name means, Reuben. Behold a son. But do you know what Benjamin's name is? Son of my right hand. How cool is it that the father is sitting there and he has the 12 tribes of Judah or uh, um, of Israel on his glowing in front of him and he got Jasper and Ruby and you have Reuben and Benjamin represented my son, my son, 
who is at my right hand. Who is that talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Jesus. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Now the King James says begotten Son, and sometimes we, we think of it in the wrong context. The word literally means that Jesus is the unique Son of God. He is the only one like this. It literally means that the Father sent someone of the same kind. And that's why we believe when Jesus was born, he was born fully man and fully God because the Father sent someone who was unique, someone who was from the same kind. He is God. That's why John 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, Jesus, and the Word was God. The Word was God. So here you have the Father, and he has these colors that represent Reuben and Benjamin that mean my son, my son at my right hand. And we know that Jesus is God's son, the son who is unique and of the same kind of essence as the father. Acts 7, 7.56, when Stephen was being stoned, he says, look, I see heaven open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, as he, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, about how heaven is closer than you think. Because when he was, before he was being stoned, he looked up and he saw the door open and he saw the throne of God. Hebrews 12 also talks about the uniqueness of the son. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus and the Father are together in heaven. This is what John sees. It's a beautiful picture. And he's there and it has this emerald rainbow around shining. And verse 4 says this, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on there were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and they had crowns of gold on their head. There's much speculation. Who are these 24 elders? Where did they come from? And why are 24 other thrones around the throne of God? Well, there's much debate, there's much discussion, and so let's just look at the top three of what people say. First, people say that they're a representative body of all the saints from the Old Testament and the New, that they are this representative body that represents Abraham and Isaac and Paul and Peter and, and your grandma and your grandpa. It's a representative body of all the saints. Second, it's a represent body, it's a representative body of the body of Christ, the church. That it's the church that gives the privilege of sitting on these 24 thrones. And third, people represent, say that it's a representative body of the angels. That they have this hierarchy and they all get to have their turn sitting there. Well, first of all, most people agree that it's a representative body. And the reason is it's based off of what David did in Chronicles where he took the priesthood. And there's like 38,000 priests. And he knew that all of them couldn't serve at the temple. So what he did was he put 24 as a representative saying, you 24 will serve at one time and then we'll give another 24 and another 24. And you would go through and you would, you would do that. And they would represent all of the priests and they would assign different jobs to different people. So we believe that it's a representative body. I believe it's a representative body. There's 24 elders and who could these be? Well, I don't believe that they're angels or spiritual beings. I don't think so. And the reason why is because they're wearing robes that are white and crowns that are gold. And in Revelation, there are two types of crowns. A crown of rulership, 
of reign and a crown of victory. A crown of victory. Angels are not given white robes to wear. And they don't have crowns of gold. So I don't think it's the angels. And I don't think it's the saints of all times because the Bible indicates that Israel's judgment is coming at the end of Revelation. That Israel's judgment is coming at the end. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 19. He said this to his disciples. Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I want to ask you something. Did Jesus get it wrong? Of course not. What he said was from the Father. And he says, listen, you disciples, there's going to be 12 thrones, and you're going to sit on there with me, and we are going to judge the tribes of Israel. So Israel's judgment is after the renewal of all things. Well, when does the renewal of all things happen? It happens in Revelations 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So if the judgment of Israel is going to happen at the end of uh, Revelation and after the renewal of all things, like Jesus says, then it has to be the group that is representing the church which kind of makes sense because we have been raptured, we're up there, we're partying, we're having a good time with Jesus, high-fiving, catching up on old friends, and we are having a great time. This is a time of celebration, and I believe that, that God is going to rapture the church, and this, these, 24, these 24 thrones are representative of the body of Christ. Because remember how they were described as people who were dressed in white and given crowns of gold. It is the church that has promised these things. Revelations 3, 4 says, Yet you few people in Sardis have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The Bible says that Jesus says that I'm going to dress them in white, the church. Revelation 2 says, do not be afraid for what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. But the faithful, even to the point of death, I will give, the life, I will give you life as your victor's crown. We are giving crowns. So here you have these 24 elders that are surrounding the throne, dressed in white, giving crowns. It has to be the church. And I believe it is the church. Because if you look at verse 10 in chapter 4 of Revelation, it says the 24 elders fall down before him and sit on the thrones and worship him who lives forever and ever. I don't know about you, but I just want to worship the Lord. I know how unworthy I am. I know what he has done for me. I know that he has given me a new life and he is worthy of praise because I've held on to him. And one day he is going to give me a white robe and he is going to put a crown on me. And when it comes my time to worship him, I'm going to do what is natural. I'm going to take my crown off and I'm going to bow down before him and say, you are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory, honor, and power. So I believe it's the church, the 24 elders that are around the thrones, around the throne of God. And John continues in Revelations 4. It says, verse 5, From the throne comes flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder in front of the throne. Seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. 
This is a very similar scene of what happened when Moses received the law on the mountain. And here's the cool thing, that why are all these things happening, the thunder, the peal of thunder and the, the lightning and all this? I think it's so cool that nature has to react to the presence of God. Nature has to react to the presence of God. When God manifests himself in our world, it has to react because their creator is upon them. So this is the same type of scene in front of the throne. And then also John says in front of the throne, there were seven lamps blazing and these are the seven spirits of God. This is best to, under, to be understood as a sevenfold of the spirit. This is also what Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 11, talked about the seven spirits of God. So why doesn't John just come out and say, hey, I see Jesus, I see the Father, and the Holy Spirit that surrounds the throne. How come he doesn't just say that? Well, remember, John was told to write what he sees. How many of you can see air? How many of you can see helium? How many of you can see things that are invisible to our eyes? But man, if I walk up close to you, you will feel the air that comes from my mouth. Woo! You know, you know it when you smell it and when you hear it and when you feel it. But you, how are you supposed to describe spirit? How are you supposed to describe the Holy Spirit? Because he's spirit. He can't see with our human eyes. He's spirit. That's why when Jesus was being baptized, how did the Holy Spirit come down? He came down as a form of a dove. When, when the Pentecost happened, the day of Pentecost happened, the Holy Spirit came and filled them and they began to speak in other tongues. What does the Bible say? That they came down in tongues of fire. Why? So that people could see that the spirit was moving. John was writing what he saw, and this is why he described the Holy Spirit in this way. Which brings us to verse 6, and I want to put all of our attention here this morning. All in front of the throne, also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. There looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. I want you to remember this. John is writing what he is seeing. And what did he see here? He saw a sea of glass clear as crystal. He didn't see a sheet of glass. He didn't see a floor made of glass. He didn't see crystals that formed this big body. He said he saw a sea like glass clear as crystal. He saw a celestial body that was there before him that he describes as a sea. John sees, sees this. And as strange as it seems, this is a very important point. Because John sees something that, that the Jews would refer to as a celestial body of water. A heavenly body of water. And this is a big deal to them. Where does this ideal come from? It comes from Genesis chapter 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I know the King James writes that in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth, but it's heavens, plural, and earth. And now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I want you to just visualize with me what, what the Lord is telling us because he gave this word to us. He gave the Bible to us to help us to understand scripture. And he says that in the beginning, so at the beginning of our time, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now the earth was formless and empty. That word earth in Hebrew literally means land. And yes, you can apply it to like a world, whatever. But there are different words that we would use for world or planet as we would think. But this is referring to land, that, that, that God created heavens and the land. And the land was empty and formless and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The surface of the deep. Deep literally means the face of the deep, something that is vast like a body of water, which makes sense because in the next verse, the Bible says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Hovering over the waters. To, the ideal of hovering over the water was, was to be able to be able to be suspended over something. And the same word is used in Deuteronomy 32 where it says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young. It's there stationary over this nest. And so here you have this picture that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, this piece of land, and it was covered by these deep, vast, dark waters. And the Spirit of God was right above it. Now just get this picture in your mind. And on the third day, God separated the waters and made dry ground appear. It says in verse 10 that he called the dry ground earth or land and gathered the waters called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then on the fifth day, God created great creatures of the sea. Verse 21, it says, so God created the great creatures of the sea and every little thing which the water teems that moves about in it. The Bible said that God created the great creatures and it was good. But I want to tell you something. The ideal of this word here in Hebrew means sea monster. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Go on now. We live in the 21st century. Right? 21st? Okay, just want to make sure. I grew up, it was always the 20th, but we're in the 21st, I believe. The sea monster. Why in the world would God create the sea monster? The word literally means this, a sea dragon, serpent-like monster that lives in the deep. You know what's pretty interesting? That almost every culture knows what a dragon is. They know what a dragon is. And you say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, come on now. Well, let's, let's just look at this for a moment. Like I said, I believe what the word says. Psalm 104 says this, verse 25, There is a sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you form, frolics there. Leviathan. I have a 14-foot boat, a little motor in the back, we like to go off fishing. I like to go out to Lake George because I know that if I fall over, I'm only in three feet of water, you know. You know, I, I don't like the sea. I don't like anything that's, you know, I don't like the lake. I don't like swimming in lake water because I know that piranha is going to come and eat me. You know, they're going to look at me and say, buffet, you know. I, I just, I don't like lake. I don't like anything like that. But if you told me, hey, guess what? The Loch Ness Monster lives in Lord, Lord, Lake George. I'll be like, yeah, right. And then here I am out my boat, and all of a sudden you see this head come up. Guess what? I'm out, right? I don't want to mess with the sea monster. And the Bible talks about Leviathan, Leviathan, this, this great sea monster. Isaiah 27 says, in the day of the Lord, the Lord will punish you with sword, his fierce, great, powerful sword. Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent, he will slay the monster of the sea. 
Now, some people right away say, wait, wait a minute, Pastor, that's just a myth. You know, I mean, the, everyone has these myths. You know, we got the Loch Ness Monster. You know, we have, you know, Bigfoot. We all have these myths. I'm just telling you what the Word of God says. And if you don't believe me, then believe what the Lord said to Job. Now, the story of Job, it's a pretty long book. You know, we were talking about this, you know, with Will, about how, you know, it's 42 chapters long. It's a pretty long book. And the whole debate on Job and, you know, did he sin? Didn't all his friends condemn him? And, and finally, Job is, is starting to spew knowledge that he doesn't have. And so God comes on the scene. He waits for all of his friends to, re, to, to say stuff. He waits for Job to rebut them. And then finally, another younger guy comes and he gives a speech. And then finally, the Lord appears on the scene. And this is what he said. This is the Lord talking to Job. Can you, verse, uh, verse 1, chapter 41, can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook and tie it down, tie its tongue down like a rope? And later on, he continues, and I just want you to read or listen to how the Lord describes this sea monster. I will not fail to speak a Leviathan's limbs, its strength in graceful form, who can strip off the outer coat, who can penetrate its double-coated armor, who dares open the doors of its mouth, ringed with its fearsome teeth, its backs, uh, it has a back a row of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between they are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Its, snort, its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like rays of dawn. Flames steam from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as, as like a boiling pot over burning reeds. Its breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from its mouth. Verse 33, nothing on earth is equal, a creature without fear. So I have to ask you this. If Leviathan is this myth and this, this thing that, you know, people were afraid of that was like the sea monster that, you know, you never see, why would the Lord spend so much time describing this great beast to Job? Why would the Lord spend so much time building up this fake myth or legend? You see, I believe that Leviathan was real. Have you ever seen, have I ever seen him? No. I've never traveled in the deep of the waters. I've never been over all this. And has anyone ever seen Leviathan? I don't know. But the Bible says that God created him. God created him. And he tells Job, this is who I am. I can put this beast in a hook and I can tame it. I can put it on a leash and give it to a little girl as a pet. That's what he says to Job. So why would God say that? You know what Job, you know what his only response was? Words that are still true today. He said, my bad, <laughs> my bad, Lord, you are good. You are right. God describes this sea monster. I believe God's word. Now, whether Leviathan exists or not, I'm not telling you what to believe. I'm just telling you what the word says. But God spent an awful long time in Job describing something that when Job heard about it, shook him, and he repented after the Lord spoke about him. So why were the people in ancient sites terrified of this creature? Now you understand why when they looked at the sea, they didn't see it in a positive light. They didn't look at it as someone who wants to move to California and enjoy the surfing and, and, you know, or, or move to Florida and enjoy the beach. No, this wasn't what they thought. They knew that there was this creature out there, this sea monster, and they were scared to death of it. And that's why they believed in a celestial sea. Genesis 1-6 says in God said, let there be a vault 
between the waters to separate water from water. Now remember the picture that there is this land, there is this earth that God has created and he put the deep waters over it. And the Spirit of God was hovering in. And then on the second day, he said, let there be a vault. And the King James labels it as firmament. Let there be a firmament between the waters to separate water from water. And so God made the vault and separated the water from under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. On the second day, God created this firmament, this expanse that separated waters from below and waters from above. You say, well, wait, 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 okay, okay, I got it, Pastor. But, but you know, when the flood happened, all that water that was up there came down and flooded the earth. Well, let's look at what happened. Genesis 7 tells us this, that in the 600th year of Noah's life, and on the seventh day of the second month, on the day that all the springs of the great deep birth forth, and the floodgates, literally the word is windows, as the windows of heaven were open, and rain fell on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. So I want you to just look at this picture here. Noah was asked to build the boat, to build an ark. And the Bible says that when it was time, the waters from the deep rose. And God opened the windows, and the water from the firmament fell, and rain also fell. Three things that happened here. You say, well, did they still believe that there was water above the firmament after this? Well, look at what David and the authors of Psalms says. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens... The realm where God lives, uh, what we would refer to as the third heaven, the place where his throne is, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament proclaim the works of his hands. And the English versions translated as heavens. And so we see the heavens declare the glory of God, and the, the skies or the heavens proclaim the work of his hands, but the word is literally firmament. So David says that heavens declare your glory and the firmament. The firmament proclaim your great works. Psalm 150, we, we hear this a lot. Praise the Lord, praise the God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens. The word heavens is literally the word firmament. Firmament. Look at what Psalm 148 says. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord of the heavens, praise him in the heights above, praise him in the angels, praise him all the heavenly hosts, praise him sun, moon, praise him all the shining stars, Praise him, you highest heavens, you waters above the skies. What they are praising God for is the creation scene. You have the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the highest heavens, and you waters above the skies. And notice that this verse comes after the flood. Why do I say this? I just want you to know that this is what Scripture is telling us for a reason. Because the people in biblical times were afraid of the sea. They were afraid of it. And they, 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 you could understand why. They didn't have the capabilities that we have today. They don't have the, the ships or the, the equipment that we have today. They don't have the technology that we have. And when they went out to sea, they also knew that there was this great creature out there. This creature that the Lord spoke about. Do you know the oldest written book that we have? The oldest copy is the book of Job. Before Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, the book of Job is the oldest book that we have. 
And God talked about Leviathan. Talked about it. And so they were afraid of these seas. So why is this so important? Because I believe this. Psalm 104 says this. The Lord wraps himself in light as a garment and he stretches out the heaven like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chamber on their waters. The Bible says that the Lord himself wraps himself in light like a garment and he stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams, lays the foundation of his throne on their waters. And he makes the clouds in his chariot ride on the wings of the wind. Listen to the description here. God has laid his foundation upon the waters. The waters. When John is in heaven, he sees the throne and he sees the sea of glass. The throne of God that is built upon the beams, upon the waters. Look at how Jesus understood cosmetology here. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it is God's throne. So we're talking about where God lives. Jesus says, do not make an oath or swear at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne or by earth it's his what? His footstool. Where do you put a footstool? You put it underneath your feet. Jesus said, listen, heaven, that's God's throne and the earth is his footstool. I said a few weeks ago that heaven is closer than you think. Heaven is closer than you think. Isaiah 40 says this. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Have you not been told? From the beginning, have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And his people are like grasshoppers. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Sitting above us. Upon the, upon the beams that are built on the waters. And so when John goes to heaven, he sees this beautiful picture of the Father and Jesus on the throne. And I'm going to bring this to a close this morning. He sees this beautiful picture of the Father and Jesus on the throne. And he sees the Holy Spirit surrounding them. And he sees that the throne is built upon this sea of glass. This celestial sea, a beautiful place. For the first time, I just imagine what John is thinking, and this is just my own thoughts, but I just imagine being a good Jewish young man, a good understander of the Hebrew text that the sea is something that's scary. The sea is something that, is, that we are afraid of because Leviathan lives out there. It's dangerous, it's vast, it's harsh. Just like the wilderness on land, the ocean is a scary place. But I see that my Father, my Savior, is upon the celestial sea. He's right there. And the Bible says in Isaiah that he sits above us in the circle of the earth looking at us. The Bible says, Jesus said that the Father is in heaven on the throne and his footstool is right below us. I I just want you to understand that we don't have to imagine God through endless galaxies and space. We don't have to think of God as some distant being out there. He's so close. 
When Stephen looked up, he saw with his eyes Jesus standing by the Father. He saw with his eyes. The Bible says that when he comes back in, John, in Revelation 1, he says that every eye will see him. We don't have to look too far to see that Jesus is coming. He's going to be here. So this is kind of, how do we apply this to our life? Well, some of us are afraid of the sea. Some of us are afraid of the things that we can't control. Some of us are afraid of the health reports, financial futures, our children. Some of us are afraid of what's going to happen tomorrow. We live in fear because it's chaotic and it's big. But I want to tell you that we serve a God who has placed his foundation upon the celestial sea. And at the renewal of all things, we will have no reason to fear or doubt. And even now, you don't have a reason to fear or doubt because the one who is above us, who's looking down upon us, he is in control. You don't have to be afraid of the sea. Don't be afraid. You know, fear is something that God doesn't want us to live by. And that's why his perfect love casts out all fear if we just trust in the love of the Father. The Father who is right there watching. I get excited when I pray. I love looking up. I hate cloudy days. Because I want to see God. I want to see him knowing that he's right there watching. So I want you to be encouraged. If you're here this morning, you say, you know, Pastor, right now I'm just a little nervous about life. I'm a little fearful of things that are going on. And, and you know what they are. I don't, you don't have to drag it out. You know exactly the needs, the concerns, the worries that you have. Just know this, that you don't have to live by the sea here. Jesus says that I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We get to participate, as Peter says, in the divine nature. We get to be a part of the kingdom now. And his kingdom is upon the glass of sea, the sea glass. His, his kingdom is above all these things. So don't be afraid.